The Eros is pure life energy. What's happened and what Tamara understands is as a culture, you know, modernity and most modern cultures have really created a kind of restricted and repressed structures of where Eros can flow and where it cannot. There's the constant adventure of the mystery of like where your Eros and where your heart wants to go and actually um, allowing that and having the safety in a field of community, in a field of support, in a field of feedback where you and the people you're with are going to be mutually held um, accountable to let the inherent erotic intelligence of life unfold as it actually wants to. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. In this episode, documentary filmmakers Ian McKenzie and John Wolfstone discuss their forthcoming documentary, Love School, about Tamara, a visionary community in Portugal bringing about systems change in the realm of love and sexuality. Ian is an award-winning filmmaker and media activist based near Vancouver. His work has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic TV, CBC Documentary, The Globe and Mail, Adbusters, and film festivals around the world. He's the director of the forthcoming short Lost Nation Road, featuring Stephen Jenkinson, and is the co-director of Amplify Her, following the rise of the feminine in electronic music. Ian is also the host of the podcast The Mythic Masculine, which I highly recommend to listeners. John is a filmmaker, ritualist, wilderness rites of passage guide, emergence facilitator, and sacred clown focused on the work of cultural redemption. Over the past 10 years, he has wielded these tools in service to restorative justice, ancestral healing, and peace building in conflict zones from rural Guatemalan villages to Middle Eastern refugee camps and inner cities in the U.S. He has studied intensively the H. Shields cultural regeneration model, been a scholar at the Orphan Wisdom School, trained with Weaving Earth relational education, and been a long-term student and trainee of the Tamara Love School and Healing Biotope. He and Ian produced new paradigm films and events through their media collaboration, Reculture Media. This is such a rich episode. Ian and John are so generous with their personal stories, and they offer some profound insights about how patriarchy has shaped our relationship to one another and the earth, and how reimagining love and sexuality in deep community can serve as a blueprint for planetary healing. I really encourage everyone to watch the documentary Love School when it comes out and to learn more about Tamara, which provides a pretty fascinating model for intentional living. John and Ian, thank you so much for being here with me today on Strippers and Sages. I'm excited that you are reporting from Salt Spring Island. Uh, and you are there. You just told me you're engaged in a little social community experiment and editing your new film, Love School. Mm-hmm. They're kind of the same thing, though. <laughs> yeah. So before I even ask you to unpack that, let's back up. I would love for you to just talk a little bit, introduce your film, introduce Tamara for those who've never heard of either, and then we'll get deep into it all. I met Ian in 2014 after I'd gone to Tamara the first time. Um, for those who don't know, Tamara is a radical like peace village. You know, They are a echo village, um, but with a much more global focus than most like village or calming like projects in the world and they're in the south of of portugal and i went there for the first time in 2014 um after having spent about a year traveling through the middle east in israel palestine also working a lot with syrian um refugees during the height 
of the Syrian civil war. And what at first attracted me to uh, Tamara was their, I guess, reckoning that uh, like outer global world of peace would be built from humans that have actually done the work of healing our collective trauma and could actually live internally, like both in themselves, but within a community context in actual peace. Because what they found out when they first started their village 40 years prior is that all the conflicts out in the world actually arose in their um, community work as they were starting. And that is why most commune projects of the 60s and 70s failed. And Tamara ultimately didn't fail and is still 30, 40 years later uh, thriving because they figured out like, whoa, all these conflicts around like money, sex, power, we actually need to uh, place this at the center and figure out how to actually do this like interpersonal healing work. So I went there in 2014, was completely blown away, especially in the work around love and um, sexuality, just the level of like it being publicly held as a, a collective uh, issue that needed to be solved on a collective level. And then I met Ian and we just kind of hit off the idea of doing a short film. Um, and we raised money on Kickstarter in 2015, now about five years ago, and went there to the Global Love School in 2015 and filmed for um, about a month. You know, we thought we were going to edit that uh, summer and be done. And once we got into the um, editing room, it was like, whoa, this is a much bigger story that we can't just unpack in 12 minutes. And thus began the five-year saga we're now on that has had many beautiful twists and um, turns, also including bringing on um, our female co-director, Julia Marianska. Um, and we're now in kind of the final stages of editing what's going to be a 90-minute kind of mythic uh, personal narrative ethnography of um, Tamara, also to actually told through the lens of Julia's kind of personal um, story through heartbreak into um, a um, initiation that Tamara really offers through their love school um, journey. Wow. So thank you. Amazing. And Ian, how did you come to that world and work? Well, I've been a filmmaker for about 11 years now. And uh, I was pretty involved, at least in sort of telling or uncovering stories that were coming out of uh, the Occupy days, Occupy Wall Street. And I'd been working on a film with another director called, or his name is Velcro Ripper, which is a unique name. Uh, and he was working on a film and I was kind of collaborating with him on that. And during the film, that film, Occupy happened. And so it really sort of kind of it was an expression of this deep undercurrent that had been that the other filmmaker had been tracking for some time. Um, what Charles Eisenstein has said, who's also featured in the film, he called it the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. And so that also kicked off a collaboration that I had with Charles. Um, one, a short film called The Revolution is Love, uh, as well as Sacred Economics, which was a short based on his book of the same name. And um, I think it was actually from that that Tamara reached out to me initially and said, hey, you know, you're obviously speaking about love in a revolutionary context. And, you know, we'd love to have you come visit the community here and see what we're doing with love. And I kind of brushed it off and, and um, you know, it was like just there's lots going on at the time. And it just felt like a kind of one I don't know, invitation of an email of many. And then uh, I think it wasn't until 
I separated from my marriage, um, you know, which also ended for a lot of reasons that only really became apparent uh, after, you know, well, it was that moment. I was like, wow, I need to learn about love really. And so I think around that time, John and I actually met because they sent, or he, he found, we had a, he had a teacher that I also spent a lot of time with named Stephen Jenkinson. And so he came over and uh, we happened to actually meet at a class. And so in some ways it's like, even though we met then, there was already a momentum towards making a film about Tamara. And so that really was that spark of like, oh, it was more like life orchestrated the whole thing. It was what it felt like. It was just sort of, we saw each other and we're like, oh yeah, okay. okay like, here we go. Uh, versus any kind of decision. It was just so obvious. Right. Yeah. A lot of really impactful, incredible minds you just mentioned that are influencing mm. your work. And um, really powerful that your art right now and this project is so integrated with your own personal journeys, which I really want to get into. Um, so Love School is the name of your film. And it also refers to a sort of workshop or methodology that Tamara engages in. Can you talk us through what that looks like a little bit? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, Love School is the name for an offering that Tamara both has kind of constantly going on, um, internally to their own community. And it's something that, that they offer globally to like activists and, um, leaders who they kept meeting, um, who are doing this amazing outer, like work in the, in the world, but then on the sidelines at, um, conferences, you know, they would talk to these people and they'd all be bringing up these same questions around like a really chaotic love life and these deep um, yearnings that didn't really have a place in the more like activist change-making work that they were um, doing. And they're like, whoa, we need to actually create a uh, platform for this. So, you know, I think also in our journey of the film and how we kind of came to the name of naming the film Love School is that more though than just like a 10 day kind of like course or a workshop that a love school is love school is also kind of like a global political frame that like what if this moment in human um history isn't about like oh climate change and we're all fucked and we need to like save the world but it's actually like one deep school of like love and what if love isn't just this like inherent thing that happens to you where you fall into, but it's actually something that can be and must be deeply learned. Like even, even like that, the idea of having a school of like love, like at some level it seems so obvious because it's like love is the uh, center of so much. But yet prior to going there and hearing that, I never had the idea that love can be learned or should be learned. So I think, I think at some level, love school at its deepest sense is really like a, worldview reframe around like what these uh, times are and what our true task as a, a human family is in this moment. Hmm. Yeah, I can add to that and say, you know, I think, you know, what I was tracking with Occupy Love, which is ultimately what that film became with that director, um, that really in the title, even Occupy Love really is this fusion of uh, perhaps direct action activism and love slash, you know, spirituality. Like those two threads um, have been w wanting to be woven for some time. And in that film, we talk about Gandhi and this idea of soul force and, and really like this coming together of spirituality and activism. And I think in the way that has been the edge of, of activist culture, um, you know, in the last say decade or so, but there's actually a missing third, which is again, so far out there for most, which is the role of Eros. And 
it is, it's so much the shadow of spirituality and politics. You know, we see it all over the place, like, you know, those in power and they have this deep shadowy, you know, relationship to sexuality uh, and, and domination over others. And, you know, me too is such an obvious example of that. Uh, and then even, and it's of course in spirituality, you know, you see, um, what's his name? Uh, you know, the main yogi, uh, I mean, you, I mean, basically probably name most of them and they'd probably have some scandal involved with their sexuality. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bikram. 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 Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's so many examples where, you know, spiritual gurus and types end up having this, uh, yeah, the shadowy undercurrent because it's this idea of, um, how like it's not integrated. And so it inherently stays in the shadow. And so Tamara realized that though it's actually those three pillars that are deeply needing to find each other, like activism, uh, spirituality and Eros and the love school was really a, a place to come together and actually research those and integrate those energies, uh, as a, as a, as a convergence. How do you define Eros? Mm -hmm. It's interesting too, right? Because I mean, for some, it's, it was almost like we have to define it to be useful, uh, you know, in conversation, you know, cause for some, it just means sex, you know, but what really we've been working with, with the film is, um, this idea that it is really pure life energy, that Eros is, is one way to say it is life's longing to create more life, mm. right? That, that, you know, whether it's the bees, you know, kissing the flowers, whether it's the way that, um, you know, a mother and child, like there's so many expressions of Eros that humans don't, it doesn't originate in humans, but humans partake in it. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, what, what's happened and what Tamara understands is as a culture, you know, modernity and most modern cultures have really created a kind of restricted and repressed uh, structures of where Eros can flow and where it cannot. And for many, that means Eros as sexuality. It's a very narrow band, right? In order to say that only Eros is there. And for many, it's only with, you know, a monogamous partnership, let's say. And what Tamara did was really expand the sense of what Eros actually is and, and kind of liberate it from the repression, which ironically actually makes it less of a deal. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like that paradox that, right. you know, a culture like say America thinks itself to be so liberated with its sexuality because it's promiscuous and there's Tinder and all this stuff, but it actually is so deeply repressed um, really about the full spectrum of sexuality. And it takes somewhere like going to Tamara to be like, oh, wow, you have to really, uh, almost like to see the water that you're swimming in, you have to be in a fully different pond. Totally. Mm -hmm. Repressed and ignorant. I wanted to comment earlier, you know, mm. you talked to John about love as something that we need to learn and not take for granted that we are inherently wise about. And I mm -hmm. often will on this podcast talk about sex that way as well. Whereas on the one hand, yes, it's our innate animal instinct and should, something that we can engage with very naturally. On the other hand, First of all, civilization has totally fucked that instinct, mm. right? And also, it's another thing that if you treat it as something to learn, you're going to have a much richer and deeper relationship with it. Yeah. Well, I think what that brings up for me, you know, you could say that Tamara as a whole, you know, you could say maybe also our both personal lives, it's really a consciousness process. So, like, yeah, there is this base animal um, instinct. And then in the worst cases, you know, where it's most um, repressed, this comes out in a really sideways, shadowy way of like Catholic priests abusing like schoolboys. Um, but I even know in my like self, these like moments when I've been 
maybe not creating enough space to be consciously with my erotic energy or my sexual um, energy. And then I feel it just like surge. And I really like through these years of uh, doing this, it's been this kind of slowing. Actually, I think of it a lot like permaculture where they have this metaphor for like water. You need to slow it, spread it, sink it for how you catch the like rain and let it really nourish the um, landscape. And I feel like it's the same thing with like erotic power. It's like creating enough consciousness where you actually can slow it, spread it and sink it and let it become this like constant nourishment for your like life. Mm. And um, instead of these like random one off, like pff, big like bursts that then kind of like clean you out and then you're good again for like a week, you know? <laughs> Beautiful. I love that. Um, so what tools and methodologies does Tamara offer in the love school to help people heal and heal that relationship and access that sort of more diffuse and energized relationship with Eros? I think a big thing is their emphasis on and a discipline really around Geist, which is um, sort of a word that sort of means, I don't know, spirit, mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what it is, is is like study. Like they actually really put a high degree, maybe because they're also German. They have a high degree of discipline around study uh, that also helps to, you could say, create the like structural frames where the experience then has a place to land and to actually take root. And so often a lot of the love school will include lectures from some of their, you know, longtime uh, residents and some of their leaders, right. That can help you again, like build the bridges of understanding, but then they have um, lots of different ways of um, almost like deprogramming their one's own relationship to their conditioning around sexuality and eros and privatization and all these things. And then stepping into a, almost like a reapproach to really, you know, again, discover anew, like really what is the power of eros um, as it is expressed through art and through contact, which is again, like a, a deep sort of, not just a philosoph- or philosophical understanding, but almost like a uh, yeah, like a, an, again, like a discipline around how to, how to actually encounter another human being with enough sense of oneself and the other. And then a third one is a big, uh, practice in the community is called forum, which, uh, maybe John can illuminate that. Is, is forum, yeah. even before you get into it, I just, I was reading about it a bit. Is it based on mm. Augusto Boal? Is that where this comes from? Forum theater? Mm, I mean, n- it's really a mix of many things. I mean, mm-hmm. it is in a way, like a form of ritual theater. Mm-hmm. I think it comes a lot out of gestalt therapy. And I think other forms of like theater therapy, um, I guess. Maybe. Psychodrama as well as another yeah, term. Like, yeah, like a psychodrama, probably um, Augusto uh, Boal. Um, but really it's a community ritual process of communication where the underground of the community, which is like the underground carried in um, individuals is made visible. So it's like all the things that people aren't saying are the same, maybe in the like sidelines, it's creating a ritual space that is, um, facilitated, you know, usually by wise elder women in the, um, community, but sometimes men, um, will create a space where you can step in with your issue and be also guided to a place of both transparency, but also, um, revelation, like a place where you might be getting insights. So like, it could be I would step in with this way that, I don't know, I'm like really um, struggling with a attraction to a certain person. But then maybe I'm guided to realizing 
how much that's to do with my relationship to my own like mother. And I'm guided to a place of like insight that like this way this mother like shamed me in a certain way is coming out in the way I'm like experiencing shame towards this person that's not actually creating a full energetic flow where that attraction can find its like natural way. Um, and that's done in a public room of like a hundred people that then people step in afterwards and give feedback. And it really creates this process of feedback loops within the um, community that really creates a much more like uh, evolutionary flow because feedback is so much the driver of what evolution is in the a biological world. And it's so much of what has been a prevented in like the hyper individualistic capitalist world is actually a big like siloing off of people from each other and really from truth and thus actually getting the feedback that we all need to grow and integrate our shadows. Um, so in what way is it performative, would you say? I could speak to that, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the word performance is, again, it can be misunderstood by um, English speakers because it is a translation of a German word, so it's not quite accurate. Mm. But by performance, it doesn't mean, you know, kind of act, like uh, just play a character, for example. But what it means is more to really, again, make visible the interior world that, that again, normally is hidden or only shared with others. But it's also, it's encouraged to, they say, disidentify with it as, oh, that's you. So for example, yeah, if there's a, you know, an inner critic or something that is often, you know, constantly chatting away um, inside you, they say, okay, we'll make that visible to all of us. And so you externalize like the inner critic and you actually perform it, mm-hmm. right? And what happens is once it's um, outside of you, I think oftentimes one can experience a kind of yeah, distancing from that energy to feel like, oh, wow, like it it actually isn't me. This is just a being that says it's inhabiting me and I can create the space to actually, you know, make it visible. And then the community can come in afterwards too and give perspective and they can say, oh, wow, like uh, that's like an archetypal energy of, you know, the critic that many carry, or they can say, oh yeah, that was linked to say a, a childhood adult figure that, you know, um, conditioned you to sort of self-parent or whatever. There's so many revelations that can come through the willingness to actually just externalize what so many of us keep inside. Yeah. And to say that the um, facilitators often will guide you in how to really like perform that more and the to a level of um, gestalt where you are almost at times creating a like caricature of it to help this this um, identification process. And also at times to like slow it down. Like I've had a, a forum where the female leader of Tamara came in and role played as my like mother mm-hmm. and like really egged me on to a point where I got like pissed. But then she <laughs> had me slow my anger down and kind of slow motion, like mm-hmm. fake punch her. But I was like in that process, receiving so much insight from what was happy, what was actually um, happening at this uh, process that is normally a trauma trigger and goes so fast that I'm actually totally unaware of what's going on. Mm. Yeah, it sounds really very similar to Forum Theater, which is Augusta Boal Theater of the Oppressed, but which has been used, you know, traditionally in more political spheres, working with marginalized people to mm-hmm. collectively engage in social chains and, and political justice. And so it's really fascinating to hear about the interpersonal application of this mm-hmm. that Tamara is using. Um, so Tamara, you know, you speak about free love and Tamara has a very unique definition of what that means. That is, I think, distinct from what our collective culture might think of from hippie culture. So can you talk about free love as it's used in that community? 
Yeah, there's a lot of baggage with the term free love uh, in this culture. And it does, I think, speak to a kind of, maybe one way is uh, love without responsibilities, right? With this idea of, oh, if you feel it, go for it, you know? Um, and, and there has been a lot of, you know, conflict and broken families, I think, because of that. Um, and I think Tamara's deep, much deeper understanding is the way that we've actually been using it now for our film and how we talk about it is truth in love. So they're dedicated to truth in love. And by that meaning that, you know, people again, misapprehend often Tamara when they say, oh, it's a polyamorous community where it's actually more accurate to say that it's a community dedicated to truth in love. And so that may look like different things to different people. So there's no, you know, um, pressure to be say open loving, but what they are dedicated is to find out what does each person need for their own, for that moment, you know, in their, in their track and their healing track, what's their edge. Uh, and for some, maybe who've come from a, a relationship where it's been very repressed and been very, uh, say monogamous, that their edge is actually to open and to explore in a, you know, safe way with other people. Whereas for others who may have been, you know, polyamorous for years, they show up and maybe their track is actually to deepen with one person and how their ability to help people find that edge is part of that whole feedback process. Uh, and so it can be really anything and also dynamically changing all the time. And I, well, I think that that's also the, the like key is like, I want to talk a bit about Tamara being a community and how important that is in all this, but really in this, in this, um, conversation around truth in love or free love, or as Tamara sometimes says, love free from fear. It's really about creating a way where like it continually can unfold and you're never getting stuck in like a certain container or a certain definition um similar to i feel how like gender in the past 10 years has been really um breaking out of this like binary and it's like oh you know what it's actually a constantly moving dance and the freest place is where each day you can like um explore what you're feeling like on that day and who you really want to be i feel like freeing love from fear is a way where yeah of course sometimes you deepen and you have partners but at the same time there's the constant adventure of the mystery of like where your arrows and where your heart wants to go and actually um, allowing that and having the safety in a field of community, in a field of support, in a field of feedback where you and the people you're with are going to be mutually held um, accountable to actually like let the inherent um, erotic intelligence of life unfold as it actually wants to, which is almost never the case in the culture that we have. There's so much uh, suppression and like editing all the time that it's a completely different thing really you spoke about um integrating the shadow of eros and why that's so important on a planetary level i'd love for you to riff a little bit more about um the relationship you know about how reprogramming our relationship to sexuality is also connected to our relationship to economics for example you did this documentary on sacred economics and our political sphere and also um ecology i mean those are the two that i would really love for you to interrelate because I think um, it's it's an emerging connection that we are really starting to understand or at least bring to the surface, but it's not necessarily um, an apparent one, certainly not in the dominant culture. So um, mm -hmm. if you could speak a little about that. Mm -hmm. I'll speak of what Charles uh, Eisenstein, who, you know, your reference with sacred economics, he, he uses this frame of the story of separation, 
which is really the core story of of civilization. And that actually corresponds with Dieter Doom, who's again one of the co-founders of Tamara, what he found initially in the you know late 60s student movement, uh, where it was really up against capitalism at the time, and he was in the communist side uh, for for a while. And what he discovered in that uh, movement was he realized like so many of the same patterns were showing up in the communist side. And so he really had this moment of kind of reconciling, well, wait a second, you know, if we're supposed to be going up against capitalism and changing the system, but the alternative carries all of the same wounds and shadows, then what's really going on here? And the way he describes it is that at the very core of civilization is the frequency of fear. Meaning that it basically, because of it is based on separation, that the natural response to, to fear is control. And so from that root, you can see how essentially all of the structures of economics of, uh, you know, I don't know, production, uh, ecological devastation, all of these things are based on the need to control out of fear. And again, it, it's, it's taking it right to the root, which is really important because, you know, again, Charles has this frame around this idea of war thinking and how deep war thinking actually goes. And you see this going on with, you know, any the political circus, of course, where the goal seems to be, you know, how, how much can we dehumanize the other and anyone that would actually vote for the other guy and how, therefore, you know, it's this constant, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Uh, but what that does actually is it doesn't actually get to, again, the root, which is fundamentally about separation and the need to control. Now, how that plays out in relationships, again, from a, uh, a culture of scarcity around Eros is, um, and this, is, this gets at the heart too about, in a sense, the consequence of the, lo the loss of village, really, right? Because if all of us are essentially living largely atomized lives, and even, you know, if you're lucky enough to have some nuclear family and most, you know, uh, also are deeply, that's rare, much more rare these days even, to have parents that are still living together. But as we become more and more and more atomized, what happens is there's a, a kind of deep existential fear, right? An existential angst that I, I'm alone or I'm going to flip through the cracks or, you know, all the rest. And so there's this constant need to kind of like to try to control, to gain more, to earn more, like all of these things that um, essentially provide a pseudo sense of security. Right. And so in that sense, greed seen from that lens, it's very easy to, you know, speak, you know, or sort of condemn, you know, modern humans as m many critics do and say, oh, humans are terrible. They're just greedy. Uh, but you realize that greed, AKA like accumulation completely makes sense if you're in fear because you want to control more to be able to feel safe. And so, um, essentially, so the way forward isn't to demonize the symptoms, which so much of, you know, the activism can do but to actually get to the place of what does it take to feel safe actually. And in relationship, both between, you know, interpersonal with human really coming to a, a different way. And this is why I spoke of the term contact earlier, which is again, like a deep, it's more of a, like a, yeah, like a deep attunement to the other and being able to say and be curious, like, Whoa, who are you? Like, why do you think the way they do or what, what are you feeling and how that relates exactly to how humans relate to the natural world as well. Right. Rather than swooping in there and, clear cutting and blah, 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 all the rest of it. Imagine uh, like pretty much every indigenous culture ever 
um, is based upon this idea of actually being in relationship and reciprocity and recognizing that life itself uh, it has a spirit and is alive. And so the the willingness to see and to proceed through contact really is such a fundamental difference than modernity, right? Which again, going back to that core is based on fear and control. And so um, unless we get right to the root, which Tamara has done, then it's impossible to actually see um, how to get forward without just creating the same challenges. And just one more thing on that. Um, that's beautiful, Ian. Um, being erotically integrated, I think is really the key to also feeling greater extents of empathy. We actually step out of this othering and dehumanization and you can actually recognize the other because that is such like one of the most basics of being human is being a erotic being. It means where humans come from. We come from erotic um, encounters, like literally. Um, and to first integrate that in one in um, oneself in a way to acknowledge that in a, another is to acknowledge their humanity, their creative um, potential, and to start to really feel and be curious about another being um, instead of just like seeing them as this like uh, uh, on this on this um, screen of like um, identity of like Republican or Democrat or Muslim or something that we can put them um, against our like selves. And in that sense, this is the root of like war on this planet, which manifests in all these different ways. But it's in a way the erotic suppression or the lack of erotic um, integration that is at the root of war and like war mentality on this planet. Mm. Such rich answers. Thank you. Yeah, a sister friend who uh, is also doing a lot of work around eros and sexuality, um, she got attacked on her on her page by a man or several men who are like, you know, why are you the world is burning? There's climate change. There's all of these issues. And you're just talking about sex as though it's this, you know, very um, ancillary and frivolous thing. And what I think that you've just surfaced I mean, there's also this history, like capitalism was built on domination and domination of our sexuality, right? I don't know if you're familiar with Silver, Silvia Federici's work, Caliban and the Witch, looks at um, how the witch burnings were about suppressing sexuality and criminalizing anything that wasn't about sex being directly related to procreation, because that was its role. And that capitalism was very much built on I mean, it's property and property has to do with women and family and all of the ways that property is passed on. So if if the domination and suppression of sexuality is what led us to this late capitalist age, then I think going to the root, as you're saying, and completely reconfiguring our relationship to our sex is what's going to help us get to the post-capitalist era. Mm -hmm. And I think to recognize that um, people, they have this phrase at Tamara that, you know, it's a bit heteronormative, but it says, uh, you know, if a man has just made love, how could he, you know, uh, kill another, like, something like that. Or like, uh, build bombs. Yeah. How could he build bombs? And, right. and that's actually a deep revelation, which is essentially if one is connected and, and living in deep connection and, um, um, like into their own sexual nature of beauty uh, and and really that vitality that comes through being connected to source and experiencing arrows, then it's like, yeah, you can't other the other. But what you realize is you also probably can't go to a job, which is like a totally dehumanizing or um, just keeping the machine going or, you know, you can't right. 
just go sit home and watch Netflix and numb out, you know, because if you're actually connected, like life won't let you, right? right? Because this yearning for, for service actually arises naturally. And so mm-hmm. as an orientation to awakening, like the deep potential that comes from um, connecting once again to Eros, that what happens is it really challenges the existing structures of the society as a whole. And so like you realize, like a Tamara did, that from that initial place of contact, a whole other cosmology of like social relationships and um, relationships to place and to the non-human world start to like recalibrate uh, and become visible. Mm-hmm. And so you can see it's a deep challenge actually to the, to the way it is to become a really awakened, you know, erotic being. What about marriage? I'm thinking about Dr. Kim Talbert's work on decolonizing sexuality, and she talks about how the institution of marriage was actually a tool of settler colonialism because it disempowered indigenous cultures by forcing them into these nuclear family structures and therefore depriving them of the very um, community ties that you are both discussing as being so integral to our collective and planetary thriving, and how even the idea of marrying for love, which is this enlightenment ideal that emerged, privileges a sort of individualism and privatization that um, very much supported the rise of capitalism. So in this restructuring of society and the social experimentation, is there a role for marriage within the Tamara vision of, of relating? Yeah, I can answer that. I mean, in short, no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and to kind of zoom that out, like in why, in some ways, you know, the like marriage is essentially built on the story that we commonly um, refer to that actually a lot of our film is unpacking. That's like the a mythology of the one or the like story of the one. That's kind of this like super deeply set unconscious programming that essentially, at least like socially, the purpose of your life is to find the one, get married, and have kids. And that is like the basic social um, organization of like humanity in late stage capitalism at this point. And the thing is, it is that is actually the structure that is the trauma response to the loss of like intact village, to the loss of um, community and being connected human beings like deeply rooted to culture and what actually i think what we've started to um, understand how that how that actually functions is that you know so much of the human journey of uh maturation which many um indigenous cultures like it is cross-culturally known as um initiation is this process where you know men or uh women and i I would like to say this in a less heteronormative way, but I don't have that fully now. But um, essentially, where through um, initiation, you actually integrate the like unconscious feminine or the unconscious masculine on the um, other side. But in a culture of, say, like marriage or finding the like one, instead of having to integrate that, like me as a man, I can go marry my other half. And instead of having to integrate the other half actually um, inside of me, like actually actually deal with and touch the unconscious feminine that lives in me as a man and like integrate that as part of my maturation work, I go and marry that and constantly stay in this codependent, like immature, more like infantile state, which often mirrors much more me and my mother and probably her and her father. 
Um, and in that sense, there's nothing really free and nothing really autonomous about me as a like being that can truly be um, in service to like life. And most indigenous cultures, even if they have partnerships, still had a, a process by which the culture helped initiate people in this way to where people coming together in a, a union wasn't two like broken halves finding um um finding um each other but two holes coming um together in a greater service to, to life so in that sense of people coming together in partnership that like naturally um uh, um occurs where it's not a compensation that does happen at tamara but again it's like a it's a constantly fluid changing process i mean there's sometimes are like rituals people have a ritual to honor their partnership but it's constantly involved also with the um community and it's constantly held and supported by the um community and if that is at all becoming a vessel for people to isolate which is kind of what happens in our culture in like people's 30s they find the one and they kind of start to isolate from their friends and become more of a nuclear thing like the community at tamira essentially calls them back in and helps them like not just isolate because both people actually start shutting down and becoming erotically and physically less well mm -hmm. and less in service to the to the whole so it's really this like bigger cultural shift around like what a what a culture of like marriage is to what a culture of community is right so it sounds like there's a healthy version of lifelong commitment monogamous commitment it's not that there doesn't have a place for that but you're a lot of the baggage or the toxicity that is associated with marriage as a form of isolationism in our current culture is what Tamara is trying to reprogram. I'd like to add another layer to it too, which is, you know, this culture, the modern culture as it is, is like, you can't, you can't live this without again, changing the structures because um, in a sense, because of the economic dependency that many women face in this culture, that there is a, a kind of, smart decision to pair uh, actually as a you know social unit which also gets you know um, benefits from the government and da, da, da. so there's like in the culture that we're in it actually makes sense like to why someone would do it but to not do it in the in the culture would again necess necessitate some big changes because at Tamara uh, everyone is held with you know food shelter that's all that's all in for all those in the community and so if you choose not to pair, it's not like you're penalized mm. or you don't have a home or do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's real kind of th those kind of levels, the possibility of just relating actually to what's true. And so again, you can't really have that outside in this culture, um, which is the challenges that many face, I think, when they do try to say go um, with different systems. Right. Um, and as well as even this question, right? Like this whole, even an idea of monogamy for life or like polyamory for life, like doesn't really make sense because it's the difference between, you know, I've experienced too, this idea that uh, even the languaging I'm monogamous or even I'm polyamorous, it's actually, it's like an identity. Right. But a that's, static version that, of yourself. Yeah, exactly. Versus like, oh, this is what I'm, this is my edge right now. This is what I'm practicing right now. And the community helps you triangulate that constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd say almost nobody's long-term monogamous at Tamara because given a safe enough uh, environment, which I've never experienced both in myself and in the people um, around me, so much safety by being held by a loving group of human beings who are actually looking out for me, it becomes there, and they've um, experienced this now for like 40 years, 
that when people are actually safe, people are turned on by many mm-hmm. and love to um, explore that in a, a variety of ways. And definitely at times, it makes sense to have monogamous um, containers, but it never seems to be something that they've experienced people when they're feeling that safe want for like a lifetime or that there is any need to make a lifetime kind of commitment. Sure. Um, how is jealousy treated or um, discussed at Tamara? Mm. In my experiences and my understanding with jealousy is, you know, I, I've heard, I've read a, a fair amount of too on the poly literature on this stuff where, mm-hmm. you know, some will say jealousy is uh, kind of like a cover for so many other feelings. Right. They'll say, oh, you know, if you really unpack jealousy, it's actually maybe it's anger mixed with a bit of turn on and like fear of abandonment or, you know, these kind of things, which, again, is kind of helpful. Um, and but I think at Tamara, again, like they they really just, I don't know, use that as a way of, again, inviting it into the space, like in the forum practice that we talked about and one's ability to, again, disidentify or to perform. And generally, you know, anything that has energy is intelligent. Like if it's able to actually be expressed and held and then given feedback, it'll lead to interesting places, right? So it becomes like a, you know, like a, a gateway into learning more uh, and discovering more. And I will say though that, you know, as that kind of core existential fear of being alone begins to relax, as somebody begins to really start to feel deeply a sense of connectivity and place uh, you know, a sense of home that, that isn't bound to one other person, then I would say, yeah, that, that seems to chill out a bit. And then when, you know, maybe the bit of jealousy can come up of, Oh, you know, this lover chose this other person which I've experienced too, where a lover chose somebody else, you know, it's, it's not a catastrophic thing. It's like, Oh, there's a bit of jealousy, you know, and being able to be with it. Uh, and then maybe process with a friend, you know, and say, Hey, Whoa, I'm feeling really jealous right now. And it's kind of like, you know, it's part of the research versus, you know, in the past, I might have gone to that lover and been like, I can't believe you did that or whatever. It just becomes this drama that is avoided because it's got way better retention spaces than simply like a too small vessel. And I'll say that jealousy is often uh, revealed there as often for the person um, experience it more about something that they're limiting in themselves for their own um, fulfillment. So it's not that this other person is doing something to harm you because they're off with somebody. It's that actually that is revealing something that you're not doing for yourself, that maybe you're putting your like fulfillment too much in this person, in this like partner, but it's actually a revealing probably needs that you have that maybe are unacknowledged um, or kind of in maybe a, a codependent way. But it's really, I think, uh, revealing a path of desire for like oneself and in this um community there's so much support to find the different ways that know that that um those needs can get met so it's not just totally locked into like this one person's job to like uh, fulfill you which is a impossible task for anyone right yeah those are really great answers and um you know i think a lot of people who haven't delved into it will hear Oh, polyamory, I guess like those people don't experience jealousy and I do. So therefore (laughs) that's off limits for me. Or they think that or jealousy doesn't have a role or it's criminalized or whatever. And I I know that's not the truth at all. And you've given some really rich explanations of how to navigate it and the deeper layers beneath it. Um, I love, yeah. There's more part I want to say in that just that that comes in now is, yeah, it's like people often don't want to dare to try community or open um, relationship because it's like, oh, it's harder. I'm going to feel more feelings. 
And it's like, yeah, fuck yeah. Because what the actual invitation is, is to heal in relationship in a way where you're actually going to be able to start touching deeper and deeper core wounds, both of yourself and the collective. And given that maybe the main paralysis of our culture is being numb, that actually, yeah, waking up is often of at first kind of painful um, experience, but it only comes to the extent that you can handle it. Or that's that's what I found in my life. Things are only awakened as I'm able to handle it. And that's Tamara's experience as, as like, well. So I think there also has to be this like reframe that it is embarking on a bigger healing journey that is gonna be more uncomfortable than staying in the more numb, uh, repressed kind of vanilla culture that you had prior. Um, I'd love to switch. Yeah. Did you want to add something? Yeah. And I want to say too, that, you know, again, this is sort of a cautionary tale to, to people who might be considering, you know, oh, okay. So we got to, I got to open, I got to explore more, or even people that have, you know, been practicing polyamory. I myself, you know, I came from a marriage that was monogamous, that relationship, you know, was 10 years. And then I went into a poly dynamic uh, with a partner for five years where we were completely open and yeah, there was a lot of challenges that came up in that. And uh, I'll say that the biggest missing piece uh, was having a dedicated group of people who were actually in it with you. And that to me is a part that I'd say almost like beware opening or exploring without a dedicated group of people that can help hold the big energies mm. and, and like create that wider vessel. And this is part of the experiment that we've been doing here that we mentioned right at the beginning is... Mm. How do we create like a resilient group that actually um, allows for like each one of us to go to like deep places and to really, you know, support as needed, not putting it all into one other person or even two other people, let's say, uh, as we each go through our journeys together. And without that, again, it, it can be very destructive um, and often actually not solvable if, if the vessel is too small because the energies are too big, the wounds, the, you know, all that stuff. A trauma is in there for most, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like build the trust circle and you don't need many, like we're working with eight mm -hmm. and it's profound. Eight people who are willing to say yes uh, is enough. That's what we're finding. And then from there you begin, you begin to unfold. Uh, but without that, again, it's, it is dangerous territory that can uh, break a lot. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's really, mm -hmm. really helpful and important. Um, well, you've sort of helped us segue into uh, some more personal conversations. You know, I would love to hear each of your own journeys to this point, really starting with your adolescence since you did. Well, I don't know how you came of age, but assuming you came of age in the very toxic culture that we are now unlearning and reprogramming, what were the things that you learned about sex and masculinity? When did you first learn about sex? How, what were your earliest sexual experiences and what were the pivotal things in your journey that sort of led you to where you are now? That's a huge question. So start <laughs> where you like, and I'll follow up with, with those same tenets to get us on track. I mean, yeah, you know, it's good in a way is I feel like so much the past five, eight years has been this like excavation of my early life and seeing how much, you know, my adult um, relationships are completely a mirror or a, a reflection or consequence of my early life. You know, and I was raised in a nuclear family, parents um, together, and really like both parents in different ways being really shut down and also shut down in their ability to parent and give me like love. And like, 
um, a fairly shut down mother that had a lot of rage and not a lot of ability to control that are also offered love at times. Um, you know, coming of age at a 13, you know, and getting totally turned on um, all of a sudden by sex and life and women and boobs and all the things. Um, you know, I was like, had no idea what to like do with it. All my education came from like school. Um, and it quickly uh, became that like being able to get girls was like the way to be cool and kind of prove my worth as a man and really getting, um, affection at some level was like the way I was dealing with the consequences of say my like mother wound, um, to really feel like we're worth as a um, human being, you know, I never had any, uh, conversations with my parents around sex i think my mom like gave me a book about masturbation that was really awkward <laughs> when i was like 14. um you know lost my virginity in the, the you know very typical kind of terrible american drunk way at a, a party um and always had notions of falling in love and finding the one which essentially happened in college when i fell in love with my circus performing partner and we like did art together and went to Burning Man and went to Mexico and Guatemala and had this epic love codependent relationship that eventually broke when she dumped me because it was actually super unhealthy and awful and that break was so um so extreme like I was so dis um distraught and at the edge of like mental health for like six months um afterwards that that was actually kind of the a propulsion that like at that point, something clicked in me where I was like, this doesn't make sense. That my entire world was like one day here crumbled the like next. And this person that was my everything, my best friend, whatever is all of a sudden just gone, like evaporated. Like that just didn't make sense at some level. And that really journey was the journey that kind of led me years later to Ian and eventually to this film. And I've, found many have the same story that it takes often an epic heartbreak to catapult them out of the story of the one being the answer into really a deeper um, exploration of like love and sex and community and what might be being asked for at this time. Hmm. I think a lot of similar themes in my story. Um, you know, I wrote an essay uh, last year touching on some of these topics, but it's called uh, home is wherever I'm with you mm -hmm. and other modern calamities. <laughs> I read it last and, night, did my homework. Mm, <laughs> awesome. And yeah, what that speaks to really is that sense that uh, home as finding the one and and really the, the kind of consequence of that, as I mentioned earlier, being married and being very much like doing the, doing the thing, the good boy thing and picket fence and, you know, the dog. And um, that, again, crumbled after really this uh, story of... of kind of opening up to the possibility of connection with others um, really derailed that sense of security that I think was, was really important to my partner um, because so much of that uh, of myself also was like home. And so threatening home is such a huge uh, catastrophe for most people. And again, in this culture, they're pretty much the same thing. Like, and, and so in that case, when the marriage ended, I really, I lost home actually. I, ended up packing everything and she kept the home and I drove away. And so I do think that that theme, you know, for me has led to, I mean, a number of places, um, particularly around my way of relating, you know, I also have a podcast called the mythic masculine. Mm -hmm. And that really is the exploration for me about, you know, my own journey as a man. 
and um, archetypally for many men and, and know for myself, really living out the story of the, the boy hero, which is an adolescent psychology of, um, in some ways, noble, you know, wanting to be of service, wanting to, you know, save women, uh, the damsel and the whole thing, and ultimately recognizing at a certain point that, you know, the hero essentially is eventually gets in the way of the damsel actually going on her own initiatory path. And um, it's codependent, <laughs> sort of obviously. Uh, and so my own journey has been largely too about stepping into uh, my own initiatory path and kind of reorienting my uh, relating to really find a place of wholeness and integration within myself. And then from there, being able to, to relate to others. And again, the community has been essential in this process of, you know, mirroring blind spots and patterns and things like that, that, you know, again, if, uh, the amount of work I feel generally relatively sort of, uh, untraumatized, let's say in terms of my upbringing being relatively you know, pretty stable. Yeah. Parents still together, um, you know, less still loving and, and beautiful, but also again, very kind of conventional in a lot of ways. And still like the amount of work that we've done here and excavated and worked through and da da da. I'm like, wow. Um, that I can't imagine what it's like for others who've really deeply suffered under again, like really shadowy elements of the culture and, um, you know, generational trauma and all these things. So, yeah, I feel like that's even made me more willing to, to be of service, um, to in a way, hopefully, you know, go forward and maybe even be out more in the sense of talking about these subjects and really to kind of like taking a stand that this is important. Uh, and hopefully others can then, you know, step forth as well and, and be encouraged in that. What are some of the common or just, um, most striking ways in which that, that boy hero and the narrative around that, like what is surfacing either right now in your discourse within this social experiment that you're doing or in previous work that you've done at Tamira, um, particularly in the realm of relating, uh, sexual relating, like where does that narrative start to play in into how you show up in sexual relationships? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I could just say uh, a number of years ago, I was reading, I was flipping through actually the book, uh, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, a classic. <laughs> classic. And, uh, and uh, I was flipping through and I read at one point, it said something like, you know, out of all the survey of all these American men, uh, what was the one thing that they feared most from their female partners? Mm -hmm. Do you know what it is? I have a guess. It's disapproval, uh. which is fascinating, right? When you think about that for a second, because why would disapproval be the worst thing? Um, and then if you, it's kind of archetypally layer it on what I, we're just talking about, like the boy hero and the damsel. Sometimes in my mind, even I see these images of like, you know, those Russian dolls that are um, a, a different dolls, like embedded and embedded. Yeah. So you, if you take off the shell of boy hero and or knight, you know, and damsel inside of it, you see boy and mother that's actually the core of it, um, from the man side in this case. And so now you see approval or disapproval of the mother is actually the core wound for men in a culture that doesn't practice initiation, where many of the mothers themselves aren't actually initiated into their own eroticism. And Tamara has a whole mythology of understanding this, which they call, uh, the sun man, meaning that like basically the boy man really. And 
that men continually grow up with a, with his adolescent relationship to the feminine and unconsciously relate to the woman as mother uh, and how that is the consequence of actually not practicing a kind of reorientation for men to come into a more broad relationship to the feminine that isn't again unconscious patterning with the mother uh, but also for the mothers to have their own journeys to not um, and this happens actually where as the boy grows into their own sexuality becomes a sexual being the mother actually can go two ways often which is one uh, uh, like abandon them or actually because they're so uncomfortable with it right like whoa my, my you know my my perfect boy is now this kind of burgeoning erotic being like whoa it can make them really uncomfortable and how that feels then to the boys that they actually are abandoned by the love of the mother right um, or they stifle and repress like shame him. and shame and the mother you know baptism of shame is actually a phrase that came mm. up when i was reading some stuff about it um, because again that makes it so uncomfortable for them they don't know how to deal with it and and actually i think the mothers fear loss of the boy because this is really a moment when they're sort of opening up their erotic being to you know look to others and now the boy that has been you know sort of theirs the perfect man you know uh for so long is now really in danger of leaving them and so they use an uh, element of shame to try to control out of that own fear of loss. Hmm. So you can see how deep these layers go, actually. Um, and again, not as a consequence to any individual within it, you know, any individual mother, whatever. But it's like it's a cultural poverty, actually, that is playing out because there isn't proper containers and proper ways of, you know, initiation, rites of passage uh, and the right vessels in which to kind of mm -hmm. uh, mature uh, each person within that constellation. Yeah, this is um, essentially how patriarchy is passed on generation to generation. You know, and I just to answer your question more specifically around sexuality, you know, especially with the advent of porn, which is like this like toxification and kind of also like, I feel almost like it's like trying to grow like super GMO foods, like so devoid of like nutrients and like pumped full of like something to create a turn on. Um, I think sexuality, you know, for myself for a long time was like this super high energy place and almost a place of like conquering in a way. And especially with Tamara, there's been the complete reorientation that it's like not about this high energy always in like coming. It's really about contact, which is a different, a wholly different energy of like coming in contact with this other being and how do our energies want to dance and like move. And that dance being what sexuality actually is like about instead of some high energy conquering, which is kind of the like shadow of not being present and filling so many other holes in my life. Um, can you actually unpack a little bit more how that sort of uh, the cycle of the, that journey that Ian just unpacked, just described for us um, leads to the, to the perpetuation of patriarchy and why in you're just using yourself as a case study as this, you know, average adolescent American boy. Why, what, why does that relationship with the mother and the shaming that comes from that lead then to a reaction that is one of domination and conquering in your sexual life? Yeah. I mean, this is a huge topic, obviously, uh, and, and happy to, to dive in. And I mean, let's take a step back for a second that, you know, the, the grand feminine, let's say, or the archetypal feminine, um, is Mother Earth. 
right? In a lot of cosmologies. And if you think back to, you know, old, older culture, still cultures even today, of course, that have survived civilization, um, but an understanding, indigenous understanding that, that it's mother earth is to be related with and to be in a reciprocal, you know, giving with, um, and to receive in a, in a way that again, sustains her as well. And if you think about how at the same time, you know, the dark mother archetype element of that is of course, that just as she gives life, so she takes it away or, or, you know, it's returned to her. And so there's something, you know, without a culture that understands this and actually creates the rituals and the, and the sort of cosmology that actually allows for that to continue. There's a danger there, of course, which, um, especially to a kind of egoic consciousness, i.e. Uh, often a masculine understanding of, of consciousness is this transcendent impulse, right? To kind of up and out and away from the body and into the mind and everything. And so what happens is from that egoic place, uh, annihilation, uh, i.e. death is terrifying, right? Because it's really the end of you. Um, and if you understand you to be the mind, let's say. Yeah. Um, and so what happens is there's a danger, right? That if enough people uh, sort of forget actually that this cycle is how life continues yeah. and instead collapse into like the personal kind of terror, let's say, um, then, and, and then of course, um, uh, try to assert a dominate a domination over the natural forces of life as they are, which is what happened. So that's what you can understand patriarchy to be, which is essentially existential terror about death and endings now projected outward as an attempt to control and dominate, right. Rather than be part of the story. Mm-hmm. And so that actually is exactly like a fractal that goes on. I mean, culture at large, which, you know, I think earlier in the conversation, we talked about like, why they need to dominate, why they need to control. And so it's this root of existential fear and terror. And so that plays itself out in the ways of relating because the women or like the female bodied uh, have a, a kind of connection to that generative capacity fertility and fertility, which a lot of older cultures, of course, understood that, right? They're like, wow, the life, the life givers, right? There was such a reverence, obviously. Um, and, and also a sexual potency that if it was actually allowed to be, you know, upheld and in a way uncaged, but within like a safe field as, which is Tamara, then women by and large discover they, like they have such an enormous capacity for like eroticism and, like just a whole cosmology of sexuality that most barely scratch the surface of in the current culture as it is. And that's terrifying as well to men because it's, you know, it's, it's like a, you know, it's deeply confronting. Right. And so the need to dominate the sexual energy of women now makes sense because it's terrifying in a way. And, and Tamara deeply understands this. Yep. Right. And so now all of the structures of, again, like, keeping women subservient and, and the feminine and da, 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 right. That is the sort of, um, what to call it. That's the orientation of patriarchy, because if it would actually allow that energy to come free, it would mean a complete reorientation of the culture. And what you get then is, you know, eons of essentially the feminine and feminine sexuality being suppressed and repressed and really abused. So it comes to a modern culture of women being locked essentially in cages of shame in their own body around sexuality. I mean, in like our day where we're more um, secular, it's starting to like open, but think of the church. It was like, even the having a sexual thought you could be punished or like hit for um, 
of course, that creates mothers that then, of course, are shaming their young boys and young girls. And the cycle just goes on and on and on and to like, and in some ways kind of simplify or tie up everything Ian was saying, this kind of roots in the loss of the goddess and this, and this like understanding of like fertility and death feeding life as part of that um, fertility as like the essential, like re the essential regenerative capacity of life. And when you lose that, and when you have that fear of death, you create a linear notion of time and a linear growth-oriented culture, which is what capitalism is. It is afraid of endings. It is afraid of death. So like cancer, it grows for its own sake and continually grows until it kills its host, which is what the situation we now have right now of humans and our endless consumption on planet Earth getting to this moment of planetary crisis. Mic drop. Um <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Wow. Um, thank you. That was profoundly eloquent from both of you on a lot of themes that this podcast seeks to unpack. Um, so you've both spoken about initiation and ritual as um, being really important uh, at this juncture in terms of healing beyond these dynamics. So can you talk about how you think about ritual, what um, sexual initiation might look like, and then connect that too to what what does a healthy sexual education look like for young people today? What, what, what could it look like? Yeah. You know, actually, I was on Ian's podcast for two episodes talking a lot um, about this and really talking about my journey towards sexual initiation at Tamara. Um, you know, and I think that essentially like ritual and initiation, which could only really happen in a village context, in some ways are the generative mending of like patriarchy. Um, and in that, you know, talking a lot about the boy hero, which is essentially the culture that patriarchy has um, created, it is really a uninitiated culture. And what that, what that would mean and what happens at Tamara is that, you know, as children come of age, as boys and girls come of age, um, they are like acknowledged and really, especially as their sexual spiritual capacities come um, online, they are like mentored and they have like essentially groups like forum groups and like social circles held by older kids anchored by elders that is um, essentially creating a safe space for research and conversation and questions and holding. And then, you know, at Tamara, we have like a whole beautiful interview in our film, but they have like a love temple, which is really a like ritualized space for like special forms of sexual um, encounters and also like research and education to um, happen. And often for like children there, when it's their first time, because there, there isn't shame, they're talking about it with their adults, with their like parents. And when the, and when like they, with the support of the, um, community feel like they're like ready for the first time it is often held in a very ritualistic way where they go to the love temple and the community comes and like gathers um and people get to like share like love poems and create this really sensual beautiful like romantically infused um space and like the young man and a woman or man and man or whatever it is get to like be publicly sent off to go have a encounter in a room in the love temple, just fully being held 
Um, and then the community gets to like stay and dance and drink wine and just like enjoy themselves in this field of love, which is kind of how love is held there um, in general. And then the, you know, when the, when the young couple is um, finished, they get to come back and be caught and maybe they want to share, maybe they don't, but the whole process is held in community in a like ritualized fashion, mm. which is so different than I was saying about my like drunken, losing my uh, virginity in kind of a shadowy way. Did I really even know her name? Nobody was there to catch me. Did we use the con? Like so much of it was this unsafe and unheld and like coming from the um, shadow. I'm imagining it in a closet. Yeah, it was something like that. It was terrible, you know? The thing about it, like, and actually really, there's actually a lot of grief, you know? That, like, and seeing people that actually had, like, a more healed image of how they came into their um, sexuality, it's like, whoa, like, we actually start to touch the, like, poverty of our, of our, of our uh, culture. Mm -hmm. And I think on a, on a wider scale, it's seeing that, you know, this, this process of coming into love and, uh, sexuality needs like a deep cultural mentorship and like tutelage and study. And that really until we create communities and cultures that can hold that, it's not that there's any like sort of big secret to that. It's just having like culture, like having willing groups of human beings that are willing to openly talk about it and care for each other in it. And the rest actually becomes kind of obvious by humans interacting but it's it's but it's that point that doesn't happen in our culture. Like parents don't talk to kids, parents don't often talk to um each other. There's just such a culture of like shame and non-communication that the more natural cultural forms that would help support these energies don't un um um, um unfold. You know, and there is a whole nother conversation around like what initiation and like rites of passage are, which we talked about a bit where people really get in touch with their like gifts and I said like integrate themselves into a more like a uh, mature form of their psyches. But sexuality is a big key of that. And if it's not integrated, that's often going to be the place where the uninitiation hides and forever keeps people bound. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much. I have so much more I would love to get into with you. So I hope we can do a part two at some point and we will definitely link to the film and to your podcast, Ian, and to both of your work. So um, it's really been a profound joy to hear what you're up to. And thanks so much for the work that you're doing in the world. Mm. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Leanne. Best of luck with the podcast. Looking forward to next time. If this episode turned you on, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It makes a huge difference. Then head to strippersandsages.com to learn more about our guests, sign up for our mailing list, access special resources, and become a Patreon supporter, which would be very sexy of you. Special thanks to Ben Euphrat for scoring and mixing these episodes, and to Lilia Tam and John Wolfstone for their production support. Stay sexy, folks. <laughs>